Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Indeed. Earmark. Oh, that's good. Yes, I'm. You were complaining that I was too loud. <laughs> no, it was just, it was, uh, it was lower down than I expected you to go. I haven't gone that low for a while. You haven't? How low Actually, can you go? That's a, there's a song there. Way on down. It wasn't, it wasn't Elvis that I was thinking of. There, I can't remember who that guy is. Well, how a, low can you go? The, no, the guy who goes really low at the end of Way on Down. Yes. Uh, is a, he's, like a, he's a gospel singer. That's right. And he does go very low. The drummer from Shiwadiwadi, Romeo Challenger, used to have a very low voice. <laughs> Isn't Romeo Challenger one of the car ads that we do? It is, yeah, the new Romeo Challenger. It's got a, it's, it's got, got an up to the minute six speed gearbox. Lots of room in the estate version. <laughs> that is a car name. Sorry, Shiwadiwadi, yes. No, I was just saying because he had a he used to do all the low talky bits, remember? And in darts, Den Hegarty, who was then replaced because he went off and had a solo career didn't Did he? he yeah well there we go that's <laughs> yeah. this week's 70s pop trivia bit basso profundo yes is that the lowest is that the lowest voice it's a yeah. film by dario argento from the 70s isn't could it be. basso profundo it was then remade with tilda swinton tilda swinton could be a car as well got... <laughs> have you got the latest tilda swinton 6.5 <laughs> Auto electric capacity. <laughs> Room for your children inside. Well, that's a, okay, that's the point, is it? A Tilda Swinton would be an electric car, but a Romeo Challenger would be a V8 with a 5.6-litre diesel chugging engine. Yeah, from 1976. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Definitely. Anyway, it's us again, and um, uh, I'm just going to interrupt this bonhomie to remind you, Mark, that yes. tickets are on sale for our Halloween special. Okay, I know this because I got an email from myself alerting me. <laughs> I got the same one. <laughs> alerting me to the fact. Does it not occur to them on the thing that we know we're going to be there? Yeah. So anyway, it said, um, join Mark Kermode and Simon Mayer's biggest ever live show for an evening of things that go bump in the night at Indigo at the O2 in London, Monday 31st of October, yeah. for a hollow, uh, hollow Halloween special. Throughout the evening, Kermode and Mayo, this is a little bit 
public school at that point because it goes all surnamey. Anyway, we'll record their podcast live with some very special guests. Uh, the audience will also be treated to a whole host of spooky special features. You have to say spooky special features. Including the final of the World Cup of Horror Films, in which the winner of the online knockout will be announced, alongside the least scary horror film of all time. <laughs> I do like that as an idea. There'll be that a, was your feature idea. A whole it? host of ghoulish games to make Halloween 2022 one to remember. I mean, I wish that, as the email suggested, I could indeed buy tickets and be in the audience to watch it. That would be a lonely experience, because then it would just be me on stage and wondering where you were. Yeah. Anyway, if anyone else would like to be in the audience, we would love to see you there. You go to kermodemo.com, tickets are on sale now, and selling, like tickets to a really good podcast show. Boom. And indeed, boom again. (laughs) That's kermodemo.com. We will see you at the O2 Hopefully. Otherwise, it'll just be Mark and me. We're sitting in the audience. Mark and me sitting in the audience. You and me sitting in the audience. Eating crisps. When's the show going to This went well. There is a story. It's an apocryphal story, I'm sure, about an actor being in a theatre, you know, half cut in the audience, waiting for somebody to come on stage and then realising that it was him. But it can't be true. It must be one of those. You know, all those... You know, Peter O'Toole, Richard Harris, you know, where there, where there were all those stories of riotous behaviour in... Lush, in Central. Earlier years. <laughs> That's right. uh, later on, yes. when we get there, what's coming up as far as you're aware? A new George Clooney and Julie Roberts film, Ticket to Paradise. Tom Hanks in uh, Robert Zemeckis' live-action Pinocchio. The Bowie documentary, Moon Age Daydream, about which I have loads of things to say. And uh, Quentin Tarantino's best film, as I have been saying for many, Decades. many a year. 25 years. Jackie fact. Brown, which brings us to our very special guest. Yes, and that's Pam Greer, um, star of Jackie Brown. She is indeed Jackie Brown. She, she is, is the Jackie Brown of the Jackie Brown movie, as opposed to the Jackie Brown who is head of casting for... Which <laughs> that's I, right. Which, which does is, come up in the conversation. It does. And uh, as if that wasn't enough, Simon... Yes. Uh, On Monday for The Vanguard, going deeper into the world of films and film-adjacent television with another extra take in which you'll get a bonus review, which this week, Mark, is... Clerks 3. Also, there'll be more with Pam Greer, who, as you'll hear on this take and the other take, is an unstoppable machine when she gets going. (laughs) It is not possible to actually stop her. Also, we'll discuss the Emmy Awards, expanding your viewing in our feature one frame back. Inspired by Jackie Brown, we've been asking you for your Elmore Leonard adaptations on our social channels. Lots to choose from, Mark, I would imagine. Yes, and it says Mark responds, to which the answer is, yes, there are lots to choose from. And in Take It or Leave It, you decide our word of mouth on a podcast feature. Mark's going to be talking about The Sandman, currently available to watch on Netflix. Send your suggestions for great streaming stuff we might have missed to correspondence at kermanameo.com. And if all that sounds right up your street, please do sign up for our premium value extra takes. Uh, This is through Apple Podcasts, or if one prefers a different platform, then you should head to extratakes.com. And if you're already a Vanguardista, as always, we We salute salute you. you. We do indeed. Um, Here is a a, a very interesting uh, email. Mm -hmm. In fact, we've got some very, very interesting... In fact, there's fantastic email sequences Mm -hmm. uh, in this particular take and all our takes. But it's from Lizzie Warns. Simon and Mark, me and my husband, Mike are LTLs and FTEs. Okay. Long-term listeners, first-time emailers. We recently got married. Why did you have to gloss that? People know. I know. It was just a kind of a mystery voice. It wasn't a mystery voice. It was your voice. I was just going sotto voce. (laughs) Yeah, but it's still your voice. 
We recently got married in Manchester on August the 6th after 22 years of knowing each other. <laughs> That's a great euphemism. It makes it sound... I mean, I know what you're saying is you've known each other for 20... If you say... <clears throat> I've known this person for 22 years. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. But for 22 years, we've been knowing <laughs> each other. other. That sounds But that's like the phrase, unnecessary. isn't it? They knew each other in the biblical sense. I always wonder, what does that actually refer to, to know each other I in think the biblical are, sense? I think it's, King, it's the King James Bible. Is it? Yes, he then knew his he, wife. He knew his wife. Something like that. <laughs> it's like there's a, there's a reference to, in the Old Testament, there's something in the King James Bible yeah. where... I think King David goes to the cave and covers his feet, which basically means he goes to the cave and has a poo. <laughs> but it's translated as he covers his feet. You could have said he tries hard, but they don't. They when, just... I was, when I was at Manchester University, I did uh, the, uh, the Bible in translation as one of my um, subsidiary studies. And there is a – I remember being told this, that there's in one of the Gospels, Jesus rides into – Jerusalem on two donkeys because it's a mistranslation of the original word for one donkey and two donkeys is the same and the person who was teaching us said you have to think about that rode into Jerusalem on two donkeys is like a circus trick it would be and so the fact that they made the mistranslation issue is whoever was doing it just literally wasn't thinking as they did the mistranslation. So in Jesus Christ Superstar, when the when the crowd are going, hey, Zana, ho, Zana, 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 hey, Superstar, they're going, wow, two donkeys. <laughs> two donkeys. That's, anyway, sorry, Lizzie warns, I got distracted. Um, so they just got married in Manchester, August the 6th, after 22 years of knowing each other. Film has always been an important part of our relationship. Our first date was to see the film Signs. Oh, yeah. Mel Gibson. The Shyamalan. Uh, oh, that's funny. You Mike went for Mel Gibson, I went for Shyamalan, but yeah, okay. Where I was amused to see Mike was hiding behind his hands during the tense moments. Film was also integral to our wedding. I walked down the aisle to Hans Zimmer's first step from Interstellar. Wow. And we walked back down the aisle together to the Indiana Jones theme tune whilst playing <laughs> along with kazoos. <laughs> I wish I was at this wedding. This sounds great. We also had all manner of film and TV themes played during the meal. We are going on our honeymoon to the USA... New York City, New Orleans, Memphis and Nashville. What a great trip that's, that that's, is. That's the full, yeah, well Saturday done. the 17th of September, and I would love it if you could say hello to Mike. I know Mike will have your podcast downloaded for the flight. He is a, he is a subscriber to your extra takes. By definition, <laughs> Lizzie, that sounds as though you're not. So you're just piggybacking on his extra takes. Oh, well, that's marriage for you. Please could you tell him how much I love him. He might know that now. Uh, and how happy I am to be his wife after all these years. There's a, that, that bit, after all these oh, years, is working very hard in that sentence. <laughs> we are both sufferers of Arles. Mike once melted down on a plane to the Muppets, and I cry at everything on land as well, though. So I'm hoping this message will have the desired effect. Thank you very much. And, of course, hello to Jason. Lizzie warns Nay Hutchinson. So very good. Uh, it's very good. So congratulations, and I hope you enjoy your honeymoon. Hello to Mike. And also to Lizzie. Yeah. And get your own subscription. We need the money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, here is a brilliant email from uh, Midia. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just a brilliant email. It's a job opportunity okay. and possibly a life-changing offer okay. being made to one of our listeners. Okay. okay. Mark and Simon, greetings from a colonial commoner and condolences. As a legacy listener... 
I have come to faith. I have come to have faith not only that I will often chortle on my morning run when listening to your ever entertaining wittering, but also that you have a remarkable fan base. I realize it's a slim chance that maybe a congregant out there has always dreamed. Now, listen up, folks, has always dreamed of moving to a charming coastal town and running a small independent movie theater. The owners of the Colonial Theatre in Belfast, Maine, so not Northern Ireland Belfast, but Belfast, Maine, in the northeastern corner of the United States, are retiring. And Sunday, September the 18th, is the last day of operation. They are looking for a buyer for this historic theatre, which is 110 years old, beautifully restored and modernised. And sports Bear in mind, in America, a building being 110 years old, that's like medieval. It is medieval. Is it pre-medieval? It's like the Dark Ages, (laughs) more of which later. And it sports an endearing elephant on its roof. Of course. I mean, there you go. Okay, it does, yeah. And you could do worse than to relocate to Belfast, Maine. Despite a population of less than 7,000, so so 7,000, that is small. Yeah. We have two independent bookshops, five art galleries, an art centre, several community theatre groups, delicious restaurants, a food co-op, a cheese shop, an olive oil shop, a thriving shipyard, two year two year-round farmers markets, a town-specific radio station WBFY, and even a town-specific community TV station called Bell TV. Oh. Although the potato processing plant burnt down earlier this year, very mysterious. They are planning to rebuild it. Oh, that's okay then. I work at the local yarn shop and not infrequently field questions from out-of-towners about moving here. If the idea of running a movie theatre in the hub of a thriving creative community perched on the coast of Maine appeals to you, I have to say at this point in the email, I thought... I'm going. Yeah, it does appeal to me. The Colonial Theatre owners are friendly and would love to talk. Get in touch via their website, uh, colonialtheatre.com. For their final 10 days, they are running 36 of their favourite titles for free, including Toy Story, The Last Picture Show, Alien, Love Actually, and The Princess Bride. I don't think my kids are ready for Alien, almost certainly right, but they are looking forward to seeing Toy Story and Princess Bride on the big screen. And my completely non-buzzy but ardent streaming recommendation is for the OA on Netflix, both haunting and compelling, packed with ideas, well-acted, moving, and contains loads of opportunities to wave hello to Jason Isaacs. It's it's the weird, weird show. Uh, Tiggity Tonkin, down with independent cinemas closing. From Midia. So, Midia from Maine. Thank you very much. And if that does appeal to you, it does sound fantastic. It sounds amazing. Depending on what state of life you're in. Uh, the uh, the email uh, address, again, is uh, all the dogs, yeah, colonialtheatre.com, if, if that's of interest to you. Belfast, Maine, sounds like heaven. It does. And they've got an olive oil shop. <laughs> I mean, And a cheese shop. Why can't... <laughs> How, how interesting can olive oil be? I mean, I'd like some olive oil. I imagine there might be a choice of three or and, four. And the writer works in a yarn shop. Yes. Selling yarn or telling, and selling cer- yarns? Not, certainly not selling olive oil because that would get in the way of the olive oil, oil shop. shop. So anyway, that's very good. Midia, thank you very much indeed. Fantastic. Right, so uh, why don't you review something, Mark, while you're here? Okay, Pinocchio, uh, which is the latest instalment in Disney's ongoing mission to remake their animated back catalogue in, you know, largely perfunctory live-action versions. So this goes back to, so we had Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, Dumbo, Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella, which I actually quite liked, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Guy Ritchie's Aladdin, Mulan, John Favreau's Lion King which of course wasn't live action anyway. It was in fact photorealist animation, so it was really an animated remake of an animated classic. So now this, which is a remake of the the classic Disney animation, 40s, um, Pinocchio, 
This project apparently dates back to 2015, at which point Sam Mendes was in talks to direct a script by Chris White's then Pastor Paul King, who, of course, you know, best known for Paddington, at which point Tom Hanks came on, although he then left when Paul King stood you know, left the project. And then he came back when Robert Zemeckis came in because, of course, he'd made, you know, Forrest Gump, Castaway, Polar Express with Robert Zemeckis, then signed on to direct. Script went through umpteen different writers, including at one point your friend Jack Thorne had a go at it, although it is now credited, as far as I can tell, to Whites and Zemeckis. Uh, Benjamin Evan Ainsworth is the voice of Pinocchio. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is Jiminy Cricket. Nobody needs to be told the plot again. Here is a familiar scene from Pinocchio. Locked solid. Well, no, I guess this isn't what you signed up for when you decided to be a famous actor, is it? It's not my fault. I never wanted to be famous. Sorry, kiddo. That's not the way I remember it. But I didn't want to be famous. I wanted to go to school. Hey! It's true. All of those people cheering and applauding. I hated it. <laughs> What's happening, Jiminy? Looks like some sort of fairy magic. Kind of on the nose, if you ask me. But the point is, a lie can really change a person, Pinocchio. Which is why I'm telling you the 110% most honestly honest, truthiest truthiness ever. Believe me! Oops. So it's the... the uh, when you hear the creaks, that means his nose is extending by like a metre every time. Yes, and that's kind of, you know, passed into... Popular mythology yes. of, you know, you get political websites with, you know, how many Pinocchios for the last Trump speech, for example. So um, other cast members, Cynthia Erivo is the Blue Fairy, Luke Evans is the Coachman, Keegan-Michael Key is the voice of the, uh, of the Fox, Honest John. Pinocchio is a weird one because people keep coming back to it. We had the live action version by Matteo Garoni just a couple of years ago. We've got the new uh, stop motion animation by Guillermo del Toro, which is going to play at the London Film Festival. I think that's its world premiere at the London Film Festival. I'm really looking forward to it. As I said, I did actually speak to Guillermo just a few weeks ago. I said, you know, what's your version about? He said it's about death, which is exactly what I want from Pinocchio. And then, of course, there's Steven Spielberg's AI, which is probably the most inventive adaptation of Pinocchio. All of those are interesting propositions. This is just the opposite of that. I think it's possibly the most pointless live action, although, again, I use that in inverted commas. That didn't look, the little clip that you just played, is yeah. we, I saw the, the actual clip from the movie in the studio. Yes. It didn't look live action at all. No, exactly. Because, firstly, the live action Obviously, the Pinocchio is an animated CG. There is just some live action in it because there are some, live, like, for example, Tom Hanks as Geppetto, although he exists in a world which is completely CG. I mean, as with all Robert Zemeckis films, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's CG-tastic. I mean, even Forrest Gump has a lot of CG in it and a lot of that sort of stuff, even though it's a live action film. Question is, why are you doing this? It looks like someone has just taken the cartoon. I mean, you saw the Pinocchio there. That's the cartoon Pinocchio. It's like somebody just did a 3D CG animation of the cartoon of Pinocchio, not reinventing the character at all, but doing it exactly as in the Disney version. Tom Hanks can twinkle all he likes. He cannot breathe any life into this new version. All the best bits of it are lifted directly from the original, whether it's songs that you recognise or whether it's the shadow of the boy transforming into the donkey. Those are all bits that you can call them nods to the original, or you can say they are the bits from the original that you remember. All the new stuff, 
like, you know, a bit more backstory motive and just, you know, some other kind of inventive are completely irrelevant. It really felt like disheartening, um, accountancy-driven fare, a project which has spent a long time coming to the screen. And I think the only thing that was driving it forward was we need to remake this part of the back catalog. And the worst thing about it is if you put it in context of the fact that it's bookended by the Garoni on the one hand and the Guillermo del Toro, which of course I haven't seen yet, but it's a Guillermo del Toro stop motion animation. If you've seen the trailer, it looks like there's going to be some really interesting stuff going on in there. And the Garoni was kind of fascinating and, and, and weird. It's just so perfunctory. And I... It breaks my heart to say this, but Hank's for nothing, Tom. I mean, really, this is beneath you, and this is not what we expect. I'm I not, don't think you, I'm, can blame, you can't blame Tom for this. I'm not blaming him. I think you just did. I'm not angry. I'm just very disappointed. Um, still to come on this fabulous take... Take one. Yes. What else are you going to be doing? Uh, Moon Age Daydream, which yes. is a documentary about uh, David Bowie. Yes. Um, Ticket to Paradise, which yes. is uh, Julia Roberts and George Clooney. And, uh, of course, you are going to be talking to our fabulous special guest. Star of Jackie Brown, who is Pam Greer. That's coming up in just a moment. Time for the ads, unless you're in the vanguard, in which case you don't need to be bothered with that kind of thing. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at NordVPN. Mark, would you say that AI has been one of the hot topics of the last 12 months or I so. would indeed yes. say that, Simon. We've had uh, writers and actors striking over the potential misuses of AI. We've had many films exploring the topic, including uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and The Creator, among others. We have, and although technological advancements bring with them exciting things, they also open the door to cybercrime. Yes, and with all these technological improvements, cybercrime will become more accessible to the average criminal and will become more frequent. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again, this is why NordVPN is so important. With one click on the NordVPN app, you are protected, meaning that you don't have to be tech savvy. Their threat protection feature shields your devices from viruses, malicious malware and phishing sites. Also, one NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. Plus, you can get access to streaming services in other regions, all for the price of a cup of coffee per month. To get the best available discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. 
There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And you'll help support our podcast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. Such as? Well, such as High and Low, John Galliano, which is the thought-provoking new documentary from Oscar winner Kevin MacDonald, charting the rise and fall of the fashion designer John Galliano. It's, uh, it traces Galliano's working and private life through the decades, candidly investigating his struggles with addiction and the industry pressure he faced along the way. It features conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, uh, Anna Wintour, and many, many more. And it is showing in UK cinemas from March the 8th. Or you could explore the Women's Cinematographers Film Group, streaming on movie in the UK from March the 8th, as women have found more equal footing in the film industry as directors, producers and screenwriters, cinematography remains a stubborn final frontier. Around International Women's Day, Mubi are spotlighting the artistic and technical work of women working behind the camera, including... Including films such as Annette from 2021, Benedetta from the same year, and more recently, Passages, all streaming in the UK from March the 8th. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo. That's mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. And welcome back. Box office time. Uh, we're looking at the top 10, Mark. You ready to go on the top I 10? I am ready to go on the top 10. At 33, <laughs> but curiously not charted in the US at all, is Blackbird. Okay. Oh, dear. So this is the Flatley film. Okay. Um, do, you, do you want an update on where we are? Um, why don't uh, Why don't I go first okay. with, with correspondence? Okay, fine. Uh, and then you then give, I'll give us you an, update. an update. So first up, uh, Ledevain Polo Kanin. I hope I've got your name about right. Mm-hmm. Um, at least with Blackbird, we got the director's cut and not a version butchered by a meddling studio. Down with all totalitarian <laughs> regimes and resumes. Dear Lady Grace... That's and, an interesting positive, yes. positive way of looking at it. Okay. James Griffiths says, uh, Dear Lady Grace and Prince Rainier, uh, one of my favourite old jokes. Hello from Hong Kong. I'm a heritage listener, two-time emailer. We previously corresponded about developments in Turkey related to the film Stray. I write with regard to the Monaco Streaming Festival and Michael Flatley. Yes. While I have no information on this specific event, I do point you to this article by the China Media Project at the University of Hong Kong. Okay. A number of utterly dire Chinese propaganda films released in recent years have nevertheless won various awards at festivals around the world, this regarding Spring in Hong Kong. According to a press release published on June the 1st, the audience applauded for three minutes after the screening. Some, it said, were stunned and their impressions of Hong Kong were refreshed. It added that the film had also recently won the Best Documentary Award at the Prague Film Festival, where, according to another article, it had to be shown again to accommodate the throngs of people who wanted to see it. Wow. As reporters at China Media Project explain, this is entirely false. There is no Prague Film Festival, nor were there any laudatory crowds at screenings of Spring in Hong Kong. Other films have won awards at festivals which do not, which do seem to take place, but under dubious circumstances, such as the International Documentary Festival of Iera Petra. 
which is in the southeast coast of Crete, because okay. I looked it up, okay? So that's the, have you heard of the International Documentary Festival of Ia Petra? I haven't. According to the 2019 Hollywood Reporter article, the emergence of online platforms such as Film Freeway, where filmmakers can submit their work to festivals around the world, has spawned thousands of festivals that run the gamut from minor but genuine events to downright scams that are out for the submission fees of aspiring filmmakers. The Prague Film Festival, where... Spring, seeing Hong Kong again, was supposedly shown to great acclaim, does not exist. But it does have a page on Film Freeway and a website. Its domain, Registration History Shows, was linked to someone who filled out Nanjing as their location, second largest city in eastern China. Maybe Mr Flatley will turn out to have been in a far more competitive festival and have beaten worthy opponents to his gong, says James Griffiths. Intriguingly, what is our latest update? So on the subject of that, on Monday, I emailed the Monaco Streaming Film Festival, which does exist. Um, It does definitely exist. It's happened twice last year and uh, 2022 to say I haven't yet received the information about who else was eligible for the Best Actor Award. Could you please provide me with it, which they said they would do. A reply came back, sorry for the delay in Amsterdam at the moment. I'll be back in Monaco from tomorrow and will reply this week. Um, And I know that the Monaco Streaming Film Festival exists because uh, there's video stuff of it. Also, I found out that its its company name, MC Streaming Film Festival Limited, is based in Cork. Um, So I'm waiting to hear about the... Excellent. Well, here we go with the rest of the top 10 then at 19, Crimes of the Future. Uh, Demark and Simon, relatively new listener and first-time correspondent here, uh, says Josh from Muswell Hill. Uh, On Monday evening, I attended a screening of Crimes of the Future, my first foray into Cronenberg territory. I'm not particularly familiar with body horror as a genre, but the word of mouth intrigued me and I booked out of a sense of curiosity. I ended up rather enjoying the film, although I was slightly perplexed by some of it and I thought it was rather uneven. Firstly, the body horror was nowhere near as horrific as I was expecting and I found the use of CGI really dampened the impact. The sequences that really made me squirm were those that used physical effects instead. I also felt that the tone of the movie didn't settle down until about halfway through. In the first half, the eroticism was teetering on the verge of comedy and the script didn't seem to take itself seriously enough. The first utterance of the phrase inner beauty pageant actually generated a wave of chuckles among my fellow audience members. However, when we reached the meat of the plot, about halfway through, and the film settled into a darker tone, I found myself more strongly engaged. The political tension was definitely the film's strong point for me. I found the questioning of what a new form of evolution means for humanity and the idea that someone could be naturally unnatural very arresting. Upon reflection, I realised that much of what I really enjoyed about this film has a spiritual connection with Blade Runner and its sequel, even down to some of the plot points. Viggo Mortensen and Lea Sudu give excellent performances, as does Lihi Kornofsky as the child's mother. Overall, it's an enjoyable, if uneven, sci-fi experience. As a footnote, I'm happy to report that the Heisenberg joke in last week's episode elicited a small chuckle from me as I was commuting on the Northern Line here in London. I must confess, though, that having done my master's project in quantum chemistry and now approaching the end of a PhD in quantum physics, I am perhaps more closely acquainted with Mr Heisenberg and his principal than the average listener. Now the Nazis up with being naturally natural. Josh from Muswell Hill, 27, on the day this episode is released. There are more highfalutin jokes in a highfalutin laughter lift in a few minutes. Can I just add to that? Yes. that it's worth saying that, uh, that as the emailer says at the beginning, um, not a, a sort of, you know, well-versed in body horror and sort of discovering this. 
If you haven't seen the Cronenberg back catalogue, there are indeed interesting ideas in this, but they're all in the Cronenberg back, back catalogue. The idea of uh, beauty pageants for insides is taken from uh, Dead Ringers. Um, many of the other concepts about viruses and evolution, they come from The Brood, from Rabid, from Scanners, from Videodrome. So my advice to you would be, if you found those ideas interesting, go back to the canon of cr classic Cronenberg, because that's where they're most excitingly explored. I do think also, incidentally, that thing about the comedic elements, I think you've correctly identified them and they don't work. They work against the film, which is really, really odd. And they reminded me, bizarrely, of the comedy sequences in Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, which the director said he put in there to make the film less intense, to which the answer is, but they're not funny, Wes. They're just weird. Stuart Iverson, possibly Iverson, partway through the scene involving a zip, someone mm -hmm. sitting in front of me walked out of the cinema never to return. And honestly, fair enough. However, as someone who has watched a fair bit of horror over the years, this is the stuff that has me still gleefully hiding behind the seat. No one can make me squirm and shudder the way Cronenberg does, and I hope he never stops. And the zip sequence refers very specifically to a sequence from Videodrome and indeed to a sequence from what was effectively a remake of Videodrome, Existence. Number 18 here, number 16 in America, 3,000 years of longing. Here is Dr. Kate Storr in Melbourne. 3,000 years of longing. Hmm. George Miller, Idris Elba, Tilda Swinton. What could go wrong? It turns out pretty much everything. The only gripping tale about this movie is the question of how it turned out so awful. Um, that's Dr. Kate Storr. Uh, Jacob Simmons in South London, Dear Dijin and Tonic, it, as it was £3 cinema day recently, I treated myself and my partner to a trip to our local picture house, the fabulous Ritzy in Brixton in London, to see George Miller's 3,000 Years of Longing. Unfortunately, £3 is all the film was worth. <laughs> I found the story to be incredibly slow, the narrative threads to be loose and unconnected, and that there was a rather worrying undertone to the picture, the idea that a successful career woman couldn't be happy unless she was loved by a man. Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba were great, of course, but all in all, I wish I'd spent my three pounds on the screening of E.T. at the Ritzy instead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would that would have been money better spent. It doesn't work. It's a shame that it doesn't, but it doesn't. And as I said when I reviewed it, you just felt like you should be reading it or even listening to it as an audiobook. But but watching, seeing it visualised up on screen, it's just a mess. Number 10 here, 13 in America is Nope. Which I... You know, I'm very divided about. I know some people absolutely love it. I think it's Jordan Peele's weakest film, although I still think it has lots of interesting stuff in it and one should see it. Number nine here, four in America, Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick. Eight here, three in America, Bullet Train. It's, yeah, it unfortunately sounds exciting, thrilling title, boring film. Uh, seven here, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Which I thought was surprisingly entertaining, not least because the incredibly annoying people, all of whom end up playing a kind of game of murder who done it. What's really, what the film is really about is the fact that their nastiness to each other is more lethal than anyone running around in, the, you know, as a murderer. UK number six, five in America, DC League of Super Pets. Rubbish. Five here, Minions, The Rise of Groove. Which I really enjoyed, despite being told by one of our emailers that it wasn't any good. Yes, it is. Uh, number four here, two in America. Brahmastra Part 1, Shiva. Yeah, which is kind of Hindi answer to the Marvel Cinematic Universe Origins movies. Um, actually really good fun. Uh, uh, directed by Ayan Mukherjee, starring Rambi Kapoor and uh, Ali Abad, who of course was so fabulous in uh, Gangi by Katiavadi. So yeah, a crowd pleaser. Uh, number three here is Jaws. Great 
a shame that it's a 3D conversion because um, there was a lovely thing in uh, film stories. They said, if you're going to do Jaws in 3D, why don't you do Jaws 3D, cowards? So <laughs> Which what, is a so very is, Simon Brew. So this is Jaws? Yes, it's Jaws, the original Jaws, up on you know IMAX screens for the first time, but they have also done a 3D conversion. And if a film never needed a 3D conversion, it's Jaws. Uh, number two here, nothing in America, Tad the Lost Explorer and the Curse of the Mummy. Third in the series of the kind of mid-range Spanish animation. I have to confess, I've never really understood the appeal of the Tad the Explorer films. And the box office number one in the UK, not charted in America, See How They Run. Which is um, really good fun. Mark McDonald says... Uh, dear in the drawing room and with the lead pipe, I have just seen <laughs> That's good. See How They Run yeah. at the View Cinema in Stirling. And? I listened to Mark's review while driving there, and it made me feel like I was definitely making the right choice. This is a big buck coming in this sense. I'm glad to say that the film Great. Okay, okay, confirmed good. it. Good, good, good. I had worried that all of the funniest moments would be in the trailer, as is so often the case with these comedies. But not only did it sail past the six laugh test, it had me laughing out loud on several occasions, yeah. something I don't think I've done in the cinema for a long time. Saoirse Ronan continues to demonstrate that she is incapable of giving anything less <laughs> than a than brilliant a performance. performance. Yeah. It isn't just her comic timing that is superb, it's the facial expressions and gestures which round it all out. The only minor criticism I could have is that some of the supporting cast, in particular the amazing Ruth Wilson, are not giving as much screen time as one would like, but given all that is happening in the world right now, this was a most welcome and joyous piece of escapist confectionery. I have to say that when when the only criticism you can level at it is that there, this, even the supporting roles are filled by really good actors you'd like to see more of, Yes, I think that's a solid thumbs up. Yep. Okay, so that is uh, number one in the UK. Now, our guest today on the programme was described by Quentin Tarantino as cinema's first female action star. She achieved fame for her roles in a string of 70s action and black exploitation films such as the seminal Foxy Brown and Coffee, going on to be the star of Jackie Brown in 1997. It is, of course, Pam Greer, and you'll hear some of my conversation with Pam after this clip from Jackie Brown. Would you mind if we just took a look in that bag? Do I mind? Do I have a choice? Yeah. You have the right to say no. No. And I have the right to make you wait here with Ray while I go get a warrant. If I don't want to go to all that trouble, I'll just take you in on suspicion right now. Suspicion of what? Ah, can I say something? He just wants to peek inside the bag for a minute. I'll keep my eye on him so he doesn't take anything. And that's a clip, of course, from Jackie Brown. I'm delighted to say that its star Pam Greer is in our studio. Hello, Pam. How are you? I'm better now. I'm Excellent. here with you, and it's an honor to be here and be invited. We are speaking the day after uh, the death of the Queen, and you were just saying to me that I think you were at the Silver Jubilee. Is that right? Yes, yes, for the Queen Mum. Uh, the uh, Queen Elizabeth was away. Uh, I, I and I understand, and but I didn't miss it, and I was greeting um, the Queen Mum with uh, John Cleese on my left and Michael Caine on my right. Oh, my, my goodness. <laughs> and I had on a Giorgio Armani dress, uh, sparkling with rhinestones. Wow. And then as the, the Queen Mum was ascending the stairs with a group of, and here's and all these people, and here's, here's Miss Greer. She's a wonderful, spirited, fighting for women in, in America. And she says, sure, I can't wait to meet her. And I said to John Cleese, who was... He was trying not to to snicker. I said, 
John, does the queen wear rhinestones? Because it was her dress was coated with these sparkling, you know, stones, and they were all diamonds. And and he says, I don't believe she does, Pam. And we were just like trying not to crack up because she was moving them. So we're all looking at her dress. And, are those diamonds? Goodness, you know. And mine. And I looked at mine. I was like, No, mine's glass. You know. So we were laughing and and just looking, just observing this gracious uh, woman monarch and her her diamonds and her jewels. She had more bling than you. It, mine wasn't bling. Mine, mine was just like dusty, old, you know, out of the closet, <laughs> rhinestones. But she was so elegant, and the fact that you know, when I did ask about the, her diamonds, that they're removed, and stored, and applied to a new design, wow. and so she was into recycling, then. And I thought that was very impressive. Recycling the diamonds. Okay. So, <laughs> well, you, don't you? Doesn't everybody? Always, always. You know, you know, I just don't you know, like throw my diamonds over in the drawer and just leave them there. You know, so I don't have diamonds. So Jackie, Jackie Brown is 25 years old. Extraordinary to watch it. And so many films from 25 years ago feel dated. And apart from the tech side, you know, with <laughs> pages and phone, the size of the phones and the type of the phones, it it feels incredibly fresh. Have you rewatched it recently or not? Yes, I do. I I watch it. Uh, I am uh, directing. Will be directing a World War Two movie that I have written, and I have been a student since day one. And anyone I work with, I am a student of, and I watch. Uh, and to be a part of Quentin Tarantino's uh, process, artist artisan artistry his memory, everything, you know, I, I absorbed his filmmaking techniques on a budget and Jackie Brown was on a budget and his, the, the people that get to work with him, um, have, must, uh, rehearse. If you are not into the rehearsal process and many actors are not, they will not work with him. He will not he doesn't want to work with you. Didn't you have a two-week rehearsal for this movie? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's extraordinary when you have a Robert De Niro, Michael Keaton, and Samuel uh, Jackson and Bridget Fonda. We're all working like our lives depend on it. And we do. We can't afford to drop a line, uh, a word. Um, he had, I would literally stay in my apartment and he would paint it six times to to have the right look and feel and vibe for the the uniform what's the scenes that are going on where he's going to plant uh, a camera a, a a light um uh, it took him three days to light the scene when ordell comes to jackie's apartment after she comes back from jail and uh he's extracting information out of her and she quentin says this is a 15 minute scene I don't want you to drop a line. Uh, it's one all the way through. You could probably do it in one take, and I want you off book. And I went, uh, okay. <laughs> so my theater training had prepared me for his his work, his dynamics in directing, mm. producing, and uh, to to you know not squander time and money and everyone's age and energy. And so I see something different every time I see Jackie Brown, and I see something that at the time I wasn't aware of the, of the importance. So when you say when you rewatch it and you 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 understand the importance of the movie, what do you the importance meaning? The what? importance of the scene when I walk out of right. that jail, 
How do I walk out? What has been stripped of me? What have I recognized about myself and humanity? And how desperate people do desperate things. And people get become so accustomed to going to jail, they look for it as they need a place to sleep that night. Yeah. When Jackie Brown by Sid Haig is ghost and sent to jail, uh, she's sleep, sitting on a slab of concrete. And it doesn't show her cell, but she's going to be in this holding cell all night long, sleeping on the floor. And how, what's going to be stripped of her? What is she going to recognize? Were you able to refine the character with Quentin Tarantino? Were you able to discuss it with him, to change it in any way? Yes, I, <laughs> I annoy everybody. So why did he do that? Why did he turn off her light? You know, um... You know, there's 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 issues. Did she buy the car herself? I always had those questions. He says, "Well, you you write it in there and you live by it." Yeah. You know, your your question and it may not be answered. But Quentin said, "But I did get her this hoopty, <laughs> this raggedy white car, and it, it it became symbolic of she doesn't want to be in this car anymore." And then the fact that she rides off in Ordell's Mercedes at the end tells a whole lot. I always start with the end result of a movie. And then you go, why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why? Did... So the fact that she went from the white raggedy stewardess car to Ordell's Mercedes says a lot of, you know, now who is she and where is she going and what she's going to do? But she's she survived. And she it's this payback, this wonderful. And on that, on that basic fact, the, the central part of you being... Jackie Brown, based on... So the book is based on Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch, mm -hmm. where the central character is a white woman. Mm -hmm. So Quentin Tarantino rewrites this mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. Rewriting in that way seems amazing. Now, at the time, that must have felt extraordinary. Yes. It was very extraordinary and surprising. And why? Why would you write that for me? I, I, I read Elmore He was Leonard. a fan. Yeah, he was a big fan. But he was a cinematic fan. I think he saw my cinematic drive as a student. And I knew because of him writing me in Reservoir Dogs as uh, Foxy Brown and some of the guys said, you know, this woman, she's just this this great woman. She's like, she's got guns, she's power, she's strong. And I said, why would he throw me under the bus? Why would he wrote it? He was very impressed by my rawness and, and and included me in the development of this story of being courageous and not and and very flawed very flawed but what but what i found watching it again pam was it's a movie in which everyone is smart but no one is smarter than you no one can stay ahead of jackie brown for very long you're ahead of the curve all the time Without a gun. Most of the time. Most of the time. Without, all she has are her wits, the loss of her husband that she believed in, who set her up. She went to jail before, lost everything, lost her job. So now she's basically, not a, she's not a bottom feeder by, by choice. This is just her circumstance. And she's always starting over at, at 49 years old. And where does she go? You know, what does she do? How does she 
helm her own life. There's lots more to talk about with Pam Greer, which we'll do uh, in take two. Um, oh, no, there's a take two. Yes, there's oh, a take two. Oh, my gosh, Simon. But for ah. the moment, for the moment, don't go anywhere. For the moment, Pam Greer, thank you very much. Okay, I run out the door. There goes Pam running down the street. No, no. <laughs> stop her, stop her. <laughs> Simon grabs her feet. She falls to the floor. They wrestle. He hangs onto her feet and her hair and the hat comes off. Part two, Pam. Come on. Okay, I'll stay. All right. That's what Quentin did. He wouldn't let me run out of the rehearsal. He made sure I stayed. This is a very eventful interview, and uh, we'll do more in take two with Pam Greer. It took a slightly surreal wow. turn um, at the end there. Wow. <laughs> That's someone who, uh, she she said in that interview, she's she's directing a movie, and that, bit at the end I think indicates someone who's immersed in screen in, in screenplay because then she sees everything as uh, in terms of a script you know it's funny because I've heard you interview a lot of people and um, and sometimes you can have uh, interviewees who are you know reticent or or, or don't, don't particularly have anything that they want to say about that wow I mean it was just like just stand back while Pam Greer tells you what she wants to tell you. Yeah, I could just have said, "Tell me about the film," and that would have that would have been enough. And there's lot, there is lots more of Pam Greer. Um, and if you are a Van Gogh Easter, you'll hear all of that in take. Do we find out what happens after being wrestled to the floor? Yeah, that's right. I wrestle her to the floor. That's what I. That's what I had to do. Anyway, so she's a, she's a force of nature. She's Pam Greer, and uh, and this is all happening because Jackie Brown is twenty five years old. Yes. So, I mean, look, I go back to what I said when the film first came out 25 years ago, which was, you know, Tarantino had done Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, both of which I had, I had liked very much. But Jackie Brown felt like a step up. It felt like a step in a different direction. It felt like, OK, I've done my first two albums in which I've demonstrated what I can do with this kind of this sort of shtick of, you know, recycling certain riffs. And I like both those films very much. I really do. But Jackie Brown felt like the first Tarantino film in which all the characters don't speak like Tarantino. And forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I went back and watched my review again and I, I still agree with what I said, which is not always the case. It has at its centre this character, as you said, in the, in, in the novel, Jackie Burke, reconfigured as Jackie Brown, paying homage to uh, Foxy Brown and casting a screen legend who Tarantino sees as, okay, this is the person that I want to use. And, you know, famously was worried about whether or not Elmore Leonard would, would you know, a- approve of the changes that he'd made, it, that he'd made to, his, uh, to his original story. And Leonard famously loved the script for Jackie Brown. He said it was not only the best adaptation of one of his novels, but one of the best screenplays he'd seen. And when you look at the film again now, there are things in it that are, that are very Tarantino-esque, that whole thing about the way in which you see something happen from several different perspectives and it doesn't make sense until you've seen all the different perspectives. This is something that we, we'd kind of grown accustomed to to some extent from, from Pulp Fiction and the way in which Pulp Fiction tells its story in a non-linear way and it's very pleasing. There's, there's something really you know wonderful about it. It's at the point in his career when the cast is star-studded, so Samuel L. Jackson, Bridget Fonda, Robert De Niro, Michael Keaton, but mainly... Pam Greer and Robert Forster, both of whose careers it, you know, reinvigorated. They both had, you know, very impressive careers already, but it kind of breathed new life into them. I'm sure for many people, introduced them to audiences for the first time. 
Again, Tarantino's use of needle drops is second to none. Across 110th Street just kind of kicks off the soundtrack. I can hear that soundtrack. song running through my head all the time now we're talking. And, and it really is a, a perfect example of a well-chosen song that then becomes wedded to that film and you won't hear it again without thinking of that film and you won't think of that film again without hearing it. And, of course, the rest of the soundtrack. I mean, at the time... I remember when Tarantino was kind of at the height of those early uh, powers, people would buy the the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack. Um, you know, suddenly suddenly everyone was a was a fan of Stuck in the Middle with You, yeah. and they would have uh, dialogue uh, sections between tracks, and the dialogue sections were almost like pop tracks in themselves. So people would recite whole chunks of dialogue um, from Pulp Fiction, whole chunks of dialogue from Reservoir Dogs, and. It's, so it seemed like the soundtrack artifact was always a you know a part of the package. But most importantly, it seemed to me to indicate a, a, a change in Tarantino's career direction. Now, one can argue about how this actually played out because scripts that he then later on went to work on, you know, had their origins earlier on. But I think that what happened was that when Jackie Brown wasn't a big box office smash in the way that they had wanted it to be, he took what I think was a you know, somewhat retrograde step and went back to doing more of what he had been doing before. And I always thought that that was a kind of a lack of nerve on his part. I wonder whether, you know, over the years, I have been too wedded to that idea. I, I still... I still always have a problem with the fact that I think Tarantino is a really talented filmmaker. And you look at Jackie Brown, you can see it. And when you look at, you know, Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood, there are segments in that film that are so good that you wonder why the bits in it that are baggy are there. But it was just really lovely to be able to, to go back and watch Jackie Brown. I mean, yes, there are things now that kind of seem weirdly of their time and things now that seem kind of, you know, oddly oddly jarring, but it's a very, very well-made film. It's got very good performances in it. I mean, predominantly, as I said, uh, those two, Pam Grier and Robert Forster, who were just just great, but it's, it's, it's like the pace of it, it's like he found the perfect pacing. I think Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are like this. I think some of his later films are like this. And I think Jackie Brown is like, it's like, it's like it's a, if there's a jazz moment between, t between am I rushing or am I dragging? And I think weirdly enough, the thing that I really thought watching it this time was he really got the pacing of Jackie Brown's spot. It's like he hit the groove. It's like he, you know, he suddenly hit the groove and he got it just right. And I, I don't think that's happened quite as well since. And Pam Greer is just the whole screen glows mm. you know she's yeah and i mean i thought it was how great to hear that in that interview she's every bit as much of a force of nature as she always was and there'll be more uh, with her mm. which you which you really do need to hear plus also when you do watch the movie you will be downing downloading tracks left right and center including the delphonics yeah 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 and, and, and including bobby womack <laughs> anyway so more with pam greer uh, later on when we do take two uh, it's the ads in a minute mark but first it's yes. time to step again into our laughter lift do we have few, to few more highfalutin jokes oh after the lowfalutin ones uh, return next you have week. some midfalutin ones. No, no, we're highfalutin. Here we go. Okay.
So last week we were somewhat swamped with highfalutin jokes that could appear in the pages of The Economist. Yes. Oh, yes, that's right. Yes. OK. In particular, a joke which ended like this. Mm -hmm. Do you know how fast you were driving? Replied the police officer rather sternly. No, says Heisenberg, but I, I know, know where, where I, I am. Want, yeah. So we asked you if you laughed at it. The overwhelming response was yes. <laughs> Amazingly, <laughs> people did laugh at it. Wow, we've got very smart listeners. Well, speaking of which, this email. Okay. Dear one conjugate variable and the other conjugate variable. I laughed out loud. This is from Oliver Morton. Okay. I laughed out loud. If the man walking down Point Hill in Greenwich, as I was walking up it this morning, is a member of the church, he can corroborate this fact. <laughs> that said, I think the joke works slightly better okay. if Heisenberg says, no, but I know exactly where I was, rather than where I, I am. am. The point is that you cannot know the momentum and the location simultaneously, <laughs> so the tenses need to match. <laughs> I liked the French Constitution joke too, but then I would. So what do you think Oliver Morton does? Here is the answer. He's the senior editor, essays, briefings and technology quarterlies at The Economist. Of course he is. Of course he is. Course I like the is. fact that we got a highfalutin joke that was corrected by Oliver Morton. Uh, here's Alex. The Heisenberg joke in this week's take gave not only myself a good chuckle, but also my friend, who is a doctor of accelerator physics, to provide another joke in a similar vein. Two cats are sitting on a sloping roof. Which one falls off first? I won't even bother answer, asking you. Because the answer is the one with the smallest mu. The Greek letter mu stands for the coefficient of friction. The cat with the smallest mu, the least friction, will fall off the roof first. Also, cats say mu. Yeah, well, no. meow. Um, Doesn't quite work, does it? And Dr. Andy Jackson, I have a PhD in physics. I understood the joke. Upon perceiving the completion of the fictional Heisenberg anecdote, I involuntarily emitted a brief nasal gust. I estimate mirth magnitude to be roughly five centi-sniggers. No chuckles were registered. I love the idea. If we've got mirth magnitude, there is something called a centi-snigger. Thank you, Andy. Um, and another Andy, Andy Bradshaw. Dear Simon and Mark and glorious puppeteer Simon, I don't know whether you'll be doing a show or wanting jokes due to the ongoing sadness about Her Majesty's passing, but I think jokes are perfectly fine. And the music is finished, so that means it's OK. However, if you are... Oh, it's starting again. Never mind. If you are, may I submit one of my late father's jokes, the research physicist, him in the big lab in the skies, favourites? Yes. Why is particle physics like constipation? I don't know. You, why is particle physics like constipation? You need to work it out with a pencil. Uh, regards. <laughs> Even and, I get that. Even yes. I get that. Can joke. I just say, Andy? I mean, uh, respect to your dad and everything, but we had that joke in the playground of St John's Church of England Primary School because the alternative was why is, it was like why is maths like constipation? You work it out with a pencil, or because you have to work it out in logs. So they were the <laughs> they were the two versions that we that we had. So that is a highfalutin joke for a research okay. physicist, but also playground. Okay. Yeah. Well. Anyway, so we'll go lowfalutin uh, for next week, unless, of course, you work for The Economist. They go high. And go you low. want to send in some more. Uh, uh, so just send in more stuff. That anyway, and, well, and, and incidentally, if you're working in The Economist ad department, yes, you do still need to pay for the adverts. Yes, come on. For heaven's sake. Anyway, what's still to come, Mark? Uh, oh, Moon Age Daydream, which is a documentary about David Bowie, and Ticket to Paradise, which is a uh, rom-com, screwball rom-com with uh, Julia Roberts and George Wobblyhead Clooney. Back after this, unless you're a Vanguard Easter, in which case you don't need to bother with any of it.
Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, schmestions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days, and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kermode. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. And we're back. Dear Takers, says Carl, a long-time listener, loyal subscriber, late receiver of WTF Relief. Which is... Well, I think... Did, I, we, did we solve one of his... I think we probably did, yes. Who's I, it from? Carl. You know Carl. Oh, Carl, yeah. Your discussion of Nazis, nuns and the sound of music compelled me to ask <laughs> you to call on the hive mind for more examples of films with this spe specific mix. Believe it or not, there is something I've given much thought to over the years and so far have only come up with uh, one other uh, in the Blues Brothers. This further leads me to the conclusion that all films combining the habit and the jackboot are very good indeed, despite Mark's misplaced misgivings about the adventures of Jake and Elwood. So movies with nuns and Nazis. But they, are, they are right that um, Blues Brothers does have nuns and Nazis. Yes, an interesting mix. Uh, Leighton says, Dearest Doctors, as someone who once suffered seasickness on dry land long, boring story involving a reservoir and some ice. I can safely say that the only advice I've been given, because we were talking about how terrible seasickness is, yeah. I've been given is that it's worth remembering is to eat a number of oranges prior to setting sail. Really? Why is that? Well, they don't stop you actually being sick, but they taste the same coming back up as they do <laughs> on the way down. Apparently so. <laughs> Which you'd be grateful for, I would think. <laughs> As the cabbage comes up again. Anyway, Elaine says, up with the usual, down with all that lot. And, and, and then he also says, God save the king, which is the first time obviously anyone's put oh, that yeah. uh, in an yeah. email. And did you know did... that, oh, sorry, but oh. just um, QCs immediately became KCs? Yes. And I'm afraid the top 40 merchant inside me went KC and, and the, the Sunshine, Sunshine Band. Band. Definitely. But that's what they, you're right, they are KCs. And there were, I was listening to, there's a podcast which Jonathan Friedland and Yannick Levy do called Unholy. Yes. And Jonathan Friedland is such a fantastic observer and understander of, of where we are. And he's talking about this moment in history in which we are. 
And he's talking about Britain's founding myth yeah. being starting in, and of course, as we know, myths have truth truth in them, yes. starting in 1940 when the UK stood alone against the Nazis and how the king at the end of the war stands on the balcony and he has Princess Elizabeth uh, right next to it. And he's talking about the King's Speech, the movie, yes. King's Speech, yeah. when um, Colin Firth has just completed the speech Finally, the first person to run up and greet him and give him a hug is Princess Elizabeth, played by Freya Wilson. And he said, that's, this, that's our kind of founding myth right there. Anyway, it was a brilliant exposition. Yeah. And then on Friday, when, so I'm doing drive time, and we're told, when we knew it was coming, we we're going to take the, the King's speech, the original version, mm -hmm. and I have to write, my, and I write my own cue. Yeah. And I'm thinking, when I say this, I just don't want to be thinking of the King's Speech. So I had to write this cue which said, it's six o'clock. We now go over to the to Buckingham Palace for an address by King Charles III. And then yeah. I opened the fader and thankfully it was there because I was thinking if that's not there, then this yeah. is going to be bad. Anyway, but it, I was just thinking it's just like that scene, you know, where they have the continuity announcer. Yes. Then they have Colin Firth. Yes. Um, anyway, so it was quite a moment. Anyway, so I just went well, off on so that. You handled it as always with grace and elegance. Well, that's, that's, you know, you 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 try to get that right because you don't want to be the person that gets it wrong. That's and I think in a nutshell, that's, that's it. Yeah, perfect. Uh, Leighton, thank you very much, Steve, for the email. So uh, we do have uh, what's on, by the way, which is which is when you send us the voice notes, which we'll come to uh, in just a moment. First of all, another review. Yeah, so uh, Ticket to Paradise, which is the new feature from Old Parker. Oh, who, good old Old. Yeah, who did, uh, you know, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, and who we, we believe is probably responsible for It'll All Be All Right in the End. He wrote it. it. Yes, exactly, from uh, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. But as you know, we've also traced it back to... John Lennon. Julian the... Julian the third, Julian of Norwich, <laughs> Julian of Norwich, Julian of Norwich, Julian of Norwich, almost certainly. Yeah. So, but it, so anyway, so this is like a kind of latter day sort of screwball romance. Um, Reteams George Clooney and uh, Julia Roberts, who have appeared on screen together uh, many times. They are a divorced couple who hate each other, but they are brought together for the graduation of their daughter Lily, played by uh, Caitlin Dever from uh, Booksmart. After graduating, she's going to become a lawyer. She goes on holiday to Bali with her best friend because, you know, she's well done. She's done well in her exams. Go off and have a holiday. Whilst there, she meets and falls in love with a local played by uh, Maxime Boutier. Um, she tells her parents that, A, she's staying in Bali, and B, she's going to marry G'day, who is the, the person that she's met and fallen in love with. They immediately jump on a plane going out under the pretense of, uh, you know, going to congratulate her, but decide, look, let's just bury the hatchet. Let's, you know, put our differences aside and let's team up to stop this marriage from happening because we both know that this is a terrible mistake. You know, this is not what our daughter is going to do. And although we can't agree on anything and we absolutely hate each other, let's just agree to work together to destroy the possibility of this marriage. But even on the journey to meet them, it is evident that presenting United Front is not going to be easy. Here's a clip. Mom, Dad, this is G'day. Om swastiastu pa. Om swastiastu me. Om swastiastu, G'day. You learned that to make me look bad. You don't need my help there. Ah, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Cotton, I welcome you to my country and soon to my home. Mrs. Cotton is his mother. You can just call me Georgia. Oh, as you wish, Georgia. Yeah, I'm good with Mr. Cotton. Uh, Georgia, perhaps I can give you a lift? Ah, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See you there. 
Pretty amazing. Oh, maybe drops her. Come on. Come on, let's go. So, they are so beautiful. I mean, I, mean, <laughs> I know it's been said before, but you're looking at they're doing this kind of... I know, but it's like cabaret, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, it's a crowd, it's beautiful. The girls are beautiful. Even the orchestra is beautiful. So, it's, this is kind of... They've gone off to the beautiful island, which in, in which everyone says, "Come, wow, this is beautiful." And they are George Clooney and Julia Roberts, and 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 everyone's beautiful. And there's a certain amount of you old know, Park. People, old Park is old quite Park. beautiful as well. Yes, yeah, precisely. And there's a certain amount of that kind of you know, why do we go to the cinema? Because outside it's the world. And inside there is this bubble in which George and Julia and Roberts have to agree to get on with each other for long enough to break up the marriage. Now, say from the outset, if you stopped the film at that point and said, OK, and now write me what happens between here and the end of the film, you could pretty much do it. Write down to the very final freeze frame. Um, it is a film which is reassuringly unsurprising. You know, there is nothing... <laughs> I can imagine a large market for that. Precisely. There are, there are moments when reassuringly unsurprising mm -hmm. is precisely what you want. So, it's nonsensical fluff in which Julia Roberts reminds us that she has the widest smile in the history of cinema, and George Clooney does that head-wobbly thing so much that you fear that his head might actually fall off because it's so wobbly. The question isn't whether or not... Um, I mean, this isn't a film that exists in the real world. It's a film that exists in the world of cinematic convention and genre convention. Fine. I mean, you know, I did the whole Secrets of uh, Cinema series about how much we embrace and enjoy genre conventions. You go to see thrillers and heist movies and rom-coms because there are certain rules. This isn't going to win, you know, an Ernst Lubitsch award. It's not Nora Ephron, but it passed the six laugh test quite easily and quite often because of just sort of slightly... It, there is fun to be had in watching George Clooney and Julia Roberts bicker with each other because they, you know, it's like they've played in this band before. They know the rhythm. So I'm doing a lot of this in this particular show. There's but, a lot of percussion on the show today. But you know what I mean when it's like they understand the beats of each other's comedy. It's also, I mean, the whole thing looks, there's a slight sort of, you know, midlife melancholia, missed opportunities that may perhaps, that may perhaps be being able to be revisited. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a thing about, well, is it the oldies or the youngies who are actually going to learn the lessons? Incidentally, this is not a quiz. It's okay. You don't need to send in your answers. It's fine. We all know what the answers are. So it's fluff, but... It's perfectly acceptable fluff that I watched and I laughed and I smiled and I thought, yeah, yeah, you know, yep, that's that's the movie that it is. If you wanted to, you could dismantle it. But why would you want to? If you go and see Ticket to Paradise, which has got the poster that it has, it's that film. And I, you know... I enjoyed it in a in a comp and it's it's weird, particularly at the moment. It was like, like you just said, yeah, 
That'll do. A lot of that. And, of course, one of the many people have said, you know, about crime fiction, or some types of crime fiction, is it's very, very popular because in that kind of P.D. James... In fact, Anthony Horowitz about his, it was talking about his, about his new book, Twist of, the, Twist of the Knife, and that people love this kind of... Because there is resolution, there is a format, there is a puzzle, it's there is entertainment to be had, and then, the, and then there is resolution. And when things are particularly uncertain mm. uh, out there, if this movie, Ticket to Paradise, is reassuringly unsurprising, I'm in the queue. Yeah, Thank and can I, can I also say... I should say because sometimes if you talk about a film like that, it gives the impression that making something that's fine is easy. No, it isn't. No, 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 no. it really isn't. Because we've all said, I mean, heaven knows, you know, I have a tin ear for comedy and we all know how many times I've got off my bike about rom-coms being savagely disappointing. And this is not in the savagely disappointing camp. So let's do a quick bit of what's honorary. Uh, this is where you email us a voice note about your festival or special screening from wherever you are in the world. It goes to correspondence at comodomayo.com. This week, we start with Anna in Helsinki. Hey, Simon and Mark. Love the new show. Anna Möttela here from Helsinki International Film Festival, Love and Anarchy, the coolest film festival in the Northern Hemisphere. Our 35th edition runs from the 15th until the 25th of September, with a simply dazzling program of films from around the world. We have special screenings, think Alien in a Fright Elevator, panel discussions and filmmaker guests. Your bad selves and all church members warmly welcome. Head on over to hiff.fi to learn more. Hello Simon and Mark, this is Sam Wilson, Festival Director of the Into Film Festival, a UK-wide free film festival for schools and young people running from the 8th to 25th of November. We'll have 2,500 free screenings and events taking place across hundreds of cinemas this November, and we're now live for booking, so if you are an educator and would like to see what's on near you, just visit intofilm.org forward slash festival. So there we had Anna from the Helsinki International Film Festival. I definitely want to go to Helsinki. It yeah. just sounds a fantastic Doesn't place. It? And the film festival sounds terrific. Anna, thank you very much. Sam Wilson from the Inter Film Festival. Send your 20-second audio trailer, please, about your event anywhere in the world to correspondence at kermanamayo.com. Uh, a couple of weeks up front, and we'll give you a shout-out. Or, of course, as we say every week, you give yourselves a shout-out. I say, every week, this feature, that feature we just did, puts a smile on my face. Every week. Yes, because you hear people really putting a lot of passion and clearly they're not thinking they're going to get incredibly wealthy th through no. this, but they're just doing what they do because they love it yeah. and they want you to go to, you know, so great. if you can uh, go to anything to do with the Into Film Festival, uh, Helsinki, Helsinki International Film Festival, then go ahead and let us know what you think. Correspondence at com. Okay, David Bowie time. So, Moon Age Daydream. I mean, I sort of hesitate in a way to call it a documentary because I mean, people have talked about it being you know, a cinema experience and a visual experience. And the best way of describing it is that it, it is a kaleidoscopic collage taken from the life and works of David Bowie, which uses uh, concert footage, um, recorded audio interview footage that kind of creates something approaching a narration, painting, dance, mime, uh, uh, dismantled songs with you know, using sort of musical stems, all put together in a collage that attempts to capture something of the magic of David Bowie. Now, the first thing to say is that this is authorised by the Bowie estate, meaning that it has access to the material that films like, for example, Stardust... Did not have. 
Well, I mean, you know, and you can understand why. I mean, the Bowie estate have been very protective of Bowie's. I mean, going right back to Todd Haynes and Velvet Goldmine, which, of course, is a film which takes its name from a Bowie song but doesn't have any Bowie material in it because, you know, because they've been rightly protected. So this does, and it has an extraordinary archive of material, some of it familiar, some of it revelatory, all put together in, as I said, this great big two and a quarter hour cinematic experience that is Bowie. Here is, here is a, I think it's the trailer, but this will give you a sense of the film. Are you there, David? You're aware of a deeper existence. Are you there, David? Are you there, David? Maybe a temporary reassurance that indeed there is no beginning, no end. Find yourself struggling to comprehend a deep mystery. This is ground control to major tongue. You've really made the grave. And the papers want to know who shirts you where. So, me cards on the table. I'm, a, you know, a big Bowie fan. I was. I saw Bowie at Earl's Court in 1978, and this was a really sort of major event for me. I remember very clearly when I was a kid, my friend Chris Dry bought me Changes One Bowie, and and he said, and I, I'm not going to buy this for myself because I'm going to buy every album that these songs are on. And I thought, well, that's a bit of a big ask. And then, of course, I found myself going exactly the same way, never listening to Changes One Bowie, because you just end up buying all the records that it's from. Um, what the film does is... Uh, there's no such thing as a definitive Bowie movie. There just isn't. In two and a quarter hours, you cannot definitively encapsulate that career. But what you can do is attempt to give a cinema audience something of the adventurous spirit of Bowie. I mean, Bowie works across you know a number of, uh, of, of genres, not just of music, but he also you know in painting and in acting, whether it's stage acting or screen acting. We see a little clip from Elephant Man. We see bits from Man Who Fell to Earth juxtaposed alongside the documentary Cracked Actor, which is the thing that gave Nick Rogue the sense that okay, that's the guy that we need for uh, Man Who Fell to Earth. There is. I mean, just in the period of the 1970s, the unbelievable evolution between Ziggy Stardust and then what he's doing by the time he gets to the Berlin trilogy. I mean, you know, that's people always talk about how incredible it was that the Beatles went from, you know, Love Me Do to Sgt. Pepper in such a small period of time. Well, Bowie is arguably one of the people who was on a similar kind of reinventory trajectory. So everyone ends up using the words chameleon like everyone says kaleidoscopic. Everyone said because there isn't any way of encapsulating it. So I went into this and when I was watching it at the beginning, I was thinking, OK, that footage, yes, seen that, haven't heard that. Where does that come from? That's from, yeah, that's from the thing about the about the sacred sculpture. And that's. But what works about Moon Age Daydream is that whether or not you are a Bowie fan or obsessive or just you know partially interested, about 20 minutes in, you realise that what you're doing is being swept up in this kind of whirlwind experience of, you know, a kind of, it is a multimedia thing. I know it's a, it's a cinematic experience, but it is a multimedia um, experience. And I wanted to, to go back and see it again on the bigger screen. I saw it at Universal, which is a great screening room, but I wanted to see it on an IMAX screen. And I wanted to hear it turned up to 20. And there are, there are very sort of, to focus on a detail, there are some very intelligent 
musical mashups in which the stems from songs are used and put together in a way which the director, I mean, Brett Morgan, who's uh, previously did Kid Stays in the Picture and he did Kurt Cobain montage of Heck, but I think this is in a kind of slightly different league in which he takes the songs apart and reconstructs them. Tony Visconti oversaw the soundscape in a way that really suggests that he understands what the way in which the music is working with the images. Yes, there's lots of film clips. Yes, the film owes a debt to to Julian Temple, who's kind of used that cultural car crash language with his, um, you know, the way in which he will take clips from films and stuff and put them all together. Like if you look at the Dr. Feelgood documentary, you can, there's a whole section of that in which it is basically clips from movies that are completely achronological in terms of Dr. Feelgood, but, uh, you know, illustrating the way in which they were outsiders. They were, they were gangsters. They were, you know, ragamuffins, that sort of thing. And sorry, you can hear from even the way I'm talking about it. Even talking about it is really exciting. And I came, I stayed at your house last night. Again, sorry, thank Lady you. In the you, van. you aren't going to get rid of me. But we immediately started talking about, you know, um, Moon Age Daydream because I've been thinking and talking about it ever since I saw it. And I think that the thing that really impressed me about it, I mean, yes, of course there are remissions. There's there's space for a host of other documentary filmmakers to make other films about Bowie because you could make, you could make I mean, people already have, you could make really extensive documents about Bowie five years, Bowie the last five years, all that stuff. Almost every single project that he was involved in would support a feature-length film. But what this manages to do is to suggest that the director has tried to apply a mindset to Bowie's back catalogue that understands the adventurousness and the reinvention and the cut-up and the, you know, the William Burroughs and all the rest of it that made Bowie, who he was, and yes, there's the period when it's everything's incredibly successful, but you know, not so commercially, not not so you know, artistically inventive. You and I had a conversation about whether or not you should see Let's Dance as a Bowie album or a Nile Rogers album. Well, it's both. It's, it is both, and yet at the same time, it's neither. And I said, you know, I remember queuing to get tickets for Earl's Court and then ignoring the Glass Spider tour, which I could hear down the road and thinking, on the one hand, what a smart kid I was to understand that. And on the other hand, what a twit I was not to do it. And you said rather pointedly, well, maybe you were both things at the same time. And that, I think, is the joy of Bowie, you know, the androgyny of Bowie, the thing that he, you, he was what you brought to him and still is. Am I indicating to you that this really worked for me? You are. It really worked for me. It really worked uh, for Mark. And once you've seen it, you can let us know. <laughs> Correspondence at Cobodemo.com. That's the end of Take One. Production management and general all-round stuff. Lily Hamley, cameras, Teddy Riley, videos on our tip-top YouTube channel. Ryan O'Meara, Johnny Socials is Jonathan Imieri, studio engineer Josh Gibbs, who wears a hat indoors. Flynn Rodham <laughs> is the assistant producer. Guest research is Sophie Ivan. Hannah Talbot is the producer and the redactor, as ever, Simon Poole, who arrived on time. Mark, what is your film of the week, as if we don't... Don't know. Moon Age Daydream. Next week, uh, we have Charlotte Rambling on the programme. Wow. Talking about her new film, Juniper. Thank you for wow. listening. Extra takes with the Emmys chat, more with Pam Greer, a bunch of recommendations and a bonus review available on Monday. Thank you for listening. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. 
it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.